Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we're going to talk a little Taiwan, a little China. We talk about it here, there, and yonder, but people are using it as a comp that doesn't really apply. Zach Yost is with us. He's going to explain it to us, freelance writer, another Young Voices contributor, and he's got a good piece out on this in Law and Liberty we're going to discuss. Zach, how are you? Thank you for joining us on the program, sir. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. It's died down a little bit as the war in Ukraine drags on, but we still hear a lot of this. Look, there's a natural inclination here because there's only so many major powers in the world, right? The U.S., China being supreme. Russia's kind of been diminished with the Ukraine situation for now. But at the beginning, a lot of people were like, oh, well, Russia invaded Ukraine, so that means China's going to invade Taiwan. It's not that China probably wouldn't like to do that, but there's not a good comp here for a lot of reasons. You lay them out. Give folks just kind of the big picture, though. Wow, that's kind of a lazy comp right off the jump, though. Right. Yeah. As soon as the war broke out, uh, lots of people in the foreign policy establishment were comparing Ukraine to Taiwan, saying that if, you know, uh, if we fail to stop this invasion, we being the whole West, but mostly the U.S., That'll give China the green light to invade Taiwan. But there are a lot of uh, differences, significant differences on multiple levels. On the purely uh, strategic level, uh, one of the major differences is that China is enormous. It's giant, and it historically, this is also the case, a lot of its resources are already tied up either patrolling and defending its like 14,000 mile long border that's contested, especially with India and Vietnam, or garrisoning, uh, you know, their ginormous cities. Uh, I mean, about half of the entire Chinese military does just those two things. Secondly, on the tactical level, things could not be more different. Um, Ukraine shares a giant land border with Russia. There is you know, that's why when the invasion started, Russia invaded on four or five fronts simultaneously. Uh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of troops crossing at once. That's not possible for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It would necessarily be an amphibious landing. And it would make, logistically, it would make D-Day look like a picnic uh, in terms of how complex it is. The weather patterns in the strait only have uh, basically two windows for invasion roughly in March and April and roughly in September, October. China does not have the lift capacity to land 100,000 troops on Taiwan on the first day. And Taiwan itself is very defensible. For one thing, the Taiwanese have been preparing to defend the island for roughly 70 years. The number of beaches that can be landed on has decreased over the years thanks to literal decades of geoengineering and uh when the allies thought they'd have to invade what was then called formosa during world war ii 
they estimated they would need a force ratio of five to one to invade and that they'd sustain 100,000 casualties. Uh, Taiwan theoretically could field two and a half million troops when you uh, mobilize the reserves and whatnot. So it's uh, not an easy feat. It's much harder than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, Zach, you're joining us. Here's another part of it. The political calculation here, look, China has a capable military, although we can debate how capable of it, how much of it is a show and just sheer numbers wise. They have a capable military. They could level the island if they really got it in their mind to. Part of the deterrent and part of the problem here is, and the reason you're talking about the amphibious nature, they needed intact. The entire calculation of this is if they took Taiwan, it's not just to eliminate them. They want it intact. They want what's there. A prolonged campaign wouldn't do that. They can't just wipe the island off the map. That doesn't achieve their goal either. That's part of the deterrent thing here is, one, you still got to cross water, which no matter how much technology you got, that's an old military problem as old as time, right? You still got to get across the water. Two is they don't really want a prolonged campaign of destruction like they've seen in some of the cities in Ukraine because it's bad for business. It's bad for their perception. They'd have to garrison it and they'd have to clean it up. And it defeats the point of why they would invade in the first place. Is that kind of a good way to sum it all up? Yeah, for sure. It's from the uh, Chinese perspective, Taiwan is a breakaway province. And while they could just, yeah, as you say, start carpet bombing the island, uh, theoretically, they want to integrate it into the rest of Chinese society. And uh, yeah, just blowing it to smithereens would be the worst way to do that. Yeah, Zach Yolch joining us. We're going to link to his Peace and Law and Liberty. You pointed out here, warfare, you know, without making everybody's eyes roll into the minutiae of it, warfare has some pretty hard and fast rules to it. You know, how big your forces, you already talked about the ratio of people you would need to assault a position. You got to have more people because you're going to lose them in the assault, that sort of things. The Chinese are not dumb. China's big thing with their military hasn't been really military conquest with what we've seen Russia do with the invasion of Ukraine. They have been projecting power. They want to show power. They want to look powerful. You laid it out, the defense of Taiwan, this would be a very, very bloody affair. They have to have the calculation somewhere in there that they just don't want to take the PR hit of putting their army in the field for what very well could be a very, very costly victory or even a straight out loss. Right. Yeah. It it's, would be an immense gamble on their part. Um, there are estimates all over the place. Um, a recent series of war games based on uh, publicly available information. Um, in all of the base case scenarios, China loses. Uh, and it's a costly loss in some situations. 30,000 troops are captured, basically stranded on the island. And you have to think how destabilizing this would be to the actual regime in China. Uh, I mean, even though they have the Great Firewall and all this suppression of information, uh, there's actually a lot of unrest in China. And we just saw it recently with the protests against zero COVID, where they actually had to change their horrible policy because society was breaking apart. Can you imagine what it would be if there's this military disaster where tens of thousands of people are captured or killed? I mean, it would be risky to the Chinese, and I think that's why they're going to try and uh, do whatever they can to avoid this sort of last-ditch gamble that, I mean, would not 
it would it would be very risky on their part. Yeah, Zach Yost joining us. You touch on an important part of this. We're talking about military deterrence, and that is important because a Taiwan that would be you know very hard to attack. That's a deterrent. The Chinese are all about business right now. One of the great deterrents might just be that invading Taiwan would be really bad for business for China. They are in a pro- look. They're not. They're not dumb. They have long range plans. They know they've got some economic trouble on the horizon. They got demographic trouble on the horizon. Their entire policy right now has been to get rich before you start having economic trouble. They've tried to strike that iron once hot. War's bad for business. They're sitting there watching what's happening to the Russian economy because the Russians are coming to them for help. Right? They're learning these lessons. Is just the invasion being bad for business, that's going to be as important as a deterrent as the military deterrent, isn't it? Uh, well, I wouldn't say as important, um, but I do think it would play a role, especially on the destabilizing front. I mean, Taiwanese companies, I mean, there's actually a lot of integration between economic integration between uh, Taiwan and the mainland. And uh <laughs> Uh, if all these Taiwanese companies that employ, you know, like millions of people on the mainland just stopped paying them uh, when it became evident that an invasion was going to occur, because is also important to consider, it's not like this could just happen tomorrow. It'd be obvious, you know, from this massive buildup of resources and troops and whatnot, uh, that, yeah, that would also be a destabilizing effect. However, I think there's all we're already seeing a lot of sort of economic disintegration. Um, I mean, lots of factories, excuse me, are moving to Vietnam and Indonesia and things like that. In the U.S., there's all this push, excuse me, for nearshoring, you know, relocating sort of uh, economic ties to Central and South America and whatnot. Um, I mean... I'm not, I don't, I don't really buy into the theory that trade decreases the likelihood of conflict. Um, we can just look at World War One. The UK was Germany's largest trading partner, things like that. But it doesn't, it certainly wouldn't hurt, I would say. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Zach, you're joining us. Okay, let's talk about the military deterrence. Again, these aren't good comps, but one comp that I think will be applicable here is the discussion of what arms actually help and hurt. You brought it up in your piece. We're linking to the piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. Just giving people the best and the brightest and the most advanced heavy weapons from the U.S. arsenal is not always the best military fit for a particular situation. Again, Taiwan, it's an island. It's going to be a defensive campaign. Just sending them the best F-16s and Abrams and things like this, 
that might not be the best way to defend them. Talk about military deterrence and how we can actually do that. It doesn't always mean just the most expensive and the best military equipment all the time. There's layers to this, isn't there? Yeah, and this is sort of a big point of uh, contention between U.S. Uh, military planners and the Taiwanese military, where even within Taiwan, there's this big debate where they theoretically shifted to an asymmetrical defensive strategy, um, but at the same time, they want to buy more fighter jets and, as you mentioned, the a Abrams tanks and things like that, where there's a lot of question of how helpful those would be. Um, a lot of uh, planners think that it would make much more sense to basically just sell Taiwan, you know, tens of thousands of <laughs> naval mines and anti-tank and anti-aircraft, uh, you know, missile systems, very mobile, very inexpensive. Um, there, there are in a lot of uh, the uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies just released this very large uh, war gaming uh, report. And in most of their scenarios, basically the entire Taiwanese and U.S. Uh, air force in the region is destroyed on the tarmac in the opening of the war. Um, uh, Taiwan does have airfields located, well, they have basically bunkers built into the sides of mountains <laughs> that, you know, could be hit with a nuke and they'd survive. But it's not anticipated that the Taiwanese air force is going to last very long at all. You know, it probably makes much more sense for them to be investing in, you know, very inexpensive drones, things like that. But there's sort of an aspect of, you know, oh, the heroic fighter pilot sort of, uh, you know, morale boost uh, and also just the, the, the old brass in the Taiwanese military wants these, wants peer systems with China. And it's just sort of, they're living in like the, you know, early nineties and before the world has changed. They sort of need to get with the program. And even if they don't, Congress has authority over arms exports. So they can sort of basically say, we will sell you this stuff. We won't sell you that stuff. And if I can, it also leads to a huge issue with our current policy with Ukraine. Uh, in the state of the union, Biden said that nothing is beyond American capacity. And when he said that, he echoed what was in his introduction to the 2022 National Defense Strategy, where he explicitly said, nothing is beyond our capability. Uh, but scarcity exists. We can't do everything all at once. And uh, CSIS just came out with a really great report uh, with estimating how many years it's going to take to replace all of the arms and equipment we've already sent to Ukraine. Uh, and we're continuing to send them more. It, it's going to take years and years. Meanwhile, there's a $19 billion backlog of arms that Taiwan has already ordered. So, uh, you know, we can't do both, really, is what it comes down to, unless, I mean, we have a huge shift in our uh, defense industrial base, which will, you know, inevitably eat up resources elsewhere. Yeah, Zach Yost joining us. Everybody's watching Russia and Ukraine. These are going to be the lessons learned for foreign policy and war fighters for the foreseeable future. Because we, we learn every time we do one, right? What's going to be the lesson 
for the Taiwanese. We talk about the Chinese angle on this. We talk about the U.S. angle on it. You just mentioned it. Taiwan has their own views on this thing. When they see that invasion and they're watching the Ukrainians right now, what lesson do you think they're taking from all this right now? Well, I think one lesson uh, they, well, uh, there's a few lessons I can think of that I think are applicable. One is that resistance is not futile. I mean, the U.S. military was saying for weeks before the invasion started that Ukraine would fall in like two or three weeks. Well, <laughs> here we are a year later. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian military, not in that great shape. I mean, they have a bunch of old Soviet junk, basically. Um, I mean, they've had huge, horrific losses, but they're still standing there. So I would say that one is that resistance isn't futile if people actually resist. Uh, Second, I would say that um, there's really it, it, it will drive home the need to take into con consideration the future of air power. Um, the, the, the sort of skies in Ukraine are sort of a gray zone. No, no one side really has air superiority uh, thanks to the proliferation of uh, anti-aircraft missiles and whatnot. And uh, Ukraine, Taiwan does have a lot of anti-aircraft systems. So I think they need to focus on increasing that capacity and also reconsider, you know, are, is it worth the expense of maintaining all these fighter jets that will probably be blown up, you know, within two or three days? Um, another thing I think they need to take away, which really every world power needs to take away, is how resource intensive this war is. I mean, the U.S. is used to fighting, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq or Libya, you know, where we just bomb, you know, un technologically unsophisticated opponents to smithereens. Uh, I mean, the U.S. has already given Ukraine over one million artillery shells. At our current rates of production, we cannot replace those. I mean, we have to ramp up production, things like that. Uh, were this war to occur, I mean, one estimate is Taiwan would run out of artillery shells within three months. Um, so <laughs> I think people really need to take stock of just how costly a war like this would be and stockpile appropriately. Yeah, and ammunition goes a lot faster than anybody estimates it. I'll tell you that right up front. Uh, Zach Yost, good stuff. Appreciate it. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, it's in Law and Liberty. Uh, you can read the whole thing for yourself. This is something to keep an eye on. Look, this is something we've been talking about for decades. You brought it up. We've been basically talking about this for 70 years. Hopefully, we'll be talking about it for another 70 years because that means the war that everybody fears didn't happen, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hartel again. Sure. So, people can follow me on Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost. Um, and I'm also the co-host of the War Economy and State podcast hosted by the Mises Institute. I co-host that with Ryan McMakin, where just once a month, usually, we sit down and talk about some sort of do an in-depth dive into foreign policy topics uh, from, you know, a restraint and realism perspective. Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Zach Yost, appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.